John 6, uh, 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed the prophet was to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of God. The story that we're looking at this morning is a very interesting story. Now, why do I use the word interesting? (laughs) Uh, On the one hand, the miracle Jesus performs feeding thousands of people is so remarkable and profound that all four Gospels record it. That's worth noting because it's the only miracle that Jesus does that all four gospel writers include in their writing. Uh, and it's, the passage we're looking at today is, is a great moment. Word is getting out about Jesus and people are interested and they're exciting and they're coming to him. And he does something amazing. He feeds them and they're so convinced that they want to make him king. And so when I say the story is interesting, it's because John chapter 6 is kind of a long chapter, long enough that we can't kind of look at it all in one week. So we're looking at at it over three weeks. By the end of the chapter, the same crowds uh, are a little bit confused or disillusioned and wind up walking away, some a bit apathetic and disinterested, maybe some a bit frustrated. When I say this is an interesting story, what I mean is looking only at the passage today, it looks like a great success story. His brand is going well. People are coming to him. He's doing great and amazing things. And they, on their own, want to make him even greater. Uh, But then it winds up feeling a bit like a failure story because by the end of it, they're no longer following him. He said the wrong thing. He blew the moment. He had the opportunity. And then uh, now the, uh, the market is responding to say, we're not buying it. I think one of the things that's happening in this story is anytime Jesus does a sign in John, we're meant to see something. God is 
revealing something. He's showing us something. And as we ask the question, what is it that we're meant to see in this story? Um, I think what we see is best taken from, from the perspective, from the seating area of the disciples. Jesus is clearly drawing us closer. He's deepening us. He's teaching us. He's showing us something. So in simplicity, the sign is look at the provision of God. Look at the power of God. Look how God promises to feed those who come to him. That's an easy thing to take away from the nature of this sign. But the disciples wind up going through a bit of a crisis themselves that when the rest of the crowds want to walk away, Jesus said, are you leaving as well? And their response is almost as if it communicates, we're thinking about it. But they wind up saying, no, we're not going to. And I think the, the second sign that happens here, a smaller one that's also well known and profound, where Jesus walks out to the disciples on the boat, the nature of that interaction versus just the crowds coming to Jesus, I think is something that helps us to see that Jesus is doing something uh, to try to teach those who are more interested, those who are drawing closer, those who want something of greater substance, to communicate to them uh, why he is worth following, but also to teach his followers in the nature of what it means to imitate him. What does it mean to do ministry, what, it is, what is it that followers of Christ have to offer and how they offer it? I think that's one of the things going on. Verses five and six, Jesus lifts his eyes, sees the large crowd coming towards him, and then he speaks to Philip. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus knows what's going on, he understands the situation, and we could assume not only does he know that he's going to feed the crowds, but once he starts teaching them, uh, that's going to change things. Jesus is very aware of what's happening. Philip, not so much. Andrew, who gets included in this story, the other disciples. The language of testing here is pedagogical language. Um, Jesus is, is having a moment where, with his disciples that up until now we've been seeing him interact with the world. Now we're seeing his interaction includes interactions with his disciples. Here they come. So what are we going to do? Uh, what do you think I should do? What do you think we should do? How do you think we could do it? What do you believe is possible? What do you imagine will happen? That conversation with Philip, um, including Andrew, who then tries to problem solve. What do we have? There's a boy here who has some food. Uh, as the story goes on and as Jesus interacts differently with his own disciples as he does with the crowds, we find that the nature of that interaction is part of what makes those disciples more ready to stay with him, even if they're equally confused as the crowds, and also ultimately those who then would take the ministry of Jesus and, and do it. So as we look at this passage, there are three things that we could see about Jesus. If we are to, to come as disciples or people who are interested in learning, who is Jesus? What is he like? How does he work? What does he expect of us? Uh, these are three things that will help us to deepen in that, but also to help us bring Christ into the world. And so what I want to look at today is the heart of Jesus, the initiative of Jesus, and the stewardship of Jesus. So beginning with the heart of Jesus. One of the things that the disciples have the advantage of, because they see Jesus, the personality, the celebrity, the one that the crowds are coming to, but they see the Behind the scenes, who is Jesus? How is he really processing this? What is he really thinking? Uh, and therefore, what they see uh, and what they then 
after Jesus has raised report about him, is the genuine nature of Jesus, including his compassion, his power, his wisdom. And so in verse two, there's a large crowd following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Uh, But then in verse five, seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? What's worth noting here is that the crowd is coming, not really understanding what Jesus is offering, but recognizing that he has something to offer. Jesus knows what's going on. So in in the next section, he says, you came to me because you were hungry, (laughs) Um, but I have more to feed you with. So he knows that these are not a spiritually deep, fully authentic people. And yet he sees them and he looks with compassion. They're coming large crowds and they need food. And so what the disciples see is not Jesus saying, here they come, boy, this is going to be a hard sell. What do we do with these stubborn people? The disciples see that Jesus, knowing that they're coming because they're hungry and not wanting the life he offers, still says to his disciples, how do we feed this large, hungry people? And I don't know about any of you, uh, what the nature of your interest in Christianity has been or is. Uh, Some of you may be trying to figure out, is Christianity worth following? In in which case, it's natural to ask the question, what does Christianity offer to me? (laughs) What do I get out of it? Or maybe there's something going on in your life where you say, I don't know, maybe Christianity could help with that. Um, There's probably more that you're not aware of, but it's not a problem that that's where you are. Some of you may have grown up in the church, and, and likely if you did, you went through some period where you asked those kinds of questions. Wait a second, what is this really about? What am I really getting? Is it worth following? But some of you, your story is actually, God has always been kind, I've always believed, that's, been, that's okay. Uh, for some of us, we ask those questions later in life. For myself, it was more post-college that I started to ask these questions. Uh, and when I look back, Knowing what I know now, I was asking kind of marginal kind of questions, important, important to me. Um, But my interest in Jesus and Christianity was not for the, the central things. I just wasn't aware of what the central things are. And now, years later, having studied the Bible, having grown so much, I now think I know what the central answers are, but I'm still learning. And I find that even if I know it, the things I really want from God are not always the deep things that he promises. I'm sometimes hungry and I just want God to feed me. I'm sometimes tired and just want God to bring joy into my life. The interesting thing is Jesus is working with real people and, and he has compassion on us that there is more that he has for us, but he doesn't drive us away for being superficial. He doesn't put high demands on us, but nor is he determined to just leave us as shallow, superficial people. But we come because we, we heard that he can do something that may provide for us. And we come forward, and God is often kind in that he does provide. And sometimes God is wise in that he doesn't necessarily provide as we expect, but God works in our lives. It's helpful to know the heart of Jesus, that Jesus knows exactly what's going on in ways that we don't. He knows himself, and he knows us. We don't know him. In coming to know him, we find that we don't really know ourselves. And what happens is sometimes we find ourselves seeing how shallow and superficial and fake we are. We get so discouraged that we want to shrink back in shame because that's what we would do 
to anybody else who would discover how superficial and shallow and fake we are. The beauty of the gospel is Jesus knows and he says, come. And, and if you're not coming for the right reason, still come. But do you want to learn? Do you want to be a disciple? I will show you. I will teach you. So if you're hungry, I'll feed you. <laughs> but there's a, a bread that has come down that will feed your soul. And why don't we talk about that too? The disciples see that. Uh, the crowd does not yet see that. And so on, on one level, this is a story uh, in its simplicity. Here's a crowd that's hungry. They have needs. They've heard about this guy, and they come. But these are also a particular people with a particular story, particular questions. And so in verse 4, when it says, now the Passover, the feasts of the Jews was at hand, it's a signal in John's storytelling. He does this three times. Uh, when Jesus goes from Galilee to Jerusalem, it's at the time of the Passover that he goes into the temple. And then he drives out the money changers. And then now it seems as a marker that it's at least a year later. Um, so as you're reading through John quickly, you may not realize a, a good amount of time has passed between chapter 5 that we looked at in the beginning of December, chapter 6 now. But now the Passover time has come. And there's a, a sign where he feeds with bread. That becomes important next week as he, as he uses the language of manna. Uh, and then the third time John talks about the Passover is when Jesus is crucified. And John tells the story such that the moment he's on the cross seems to be the moment that the Passover lamb is otherwise being sacrificed. Jesus' ministry is, is fulfilling in ways that we may not be aware of, but that first century crowd would have wanted answers to those kinds of questions. So when they see that the time of the Passover has come, we've been waiting on Elijah, we've, every year we hope that this will be a time of God's blessing, We've heard that there's this guy going around and he's godly and he's teaching and he's announcing a kingdom and he's doing these signs and they come to him. When Jesus feeds them, they are enamored because they see the story of scripture coming together in their midst. So in verses 14 and 15, they say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So on the one hand, they're getting it in a deeper level. When they say this is the prophet, it's not some new idea. They're not giving a label to what they're seeing. They're remembering Moses, the one who gave manna, bread from heaven, the one who delivered them out. The great prophet said, after I die, God will raise up another prophet. And they looked at the various prophets. And, and yes, Elijah was a prophet that was raised up. Isaiah was a prophet that was raised up. But by the first century, there was a sense in which who is that one like Moses? The crowd rightly sees this is the one. And they want to make him king. Hungry people being fed, uh, knowing the story. Everything seems right, and yet Jesus doesn't seem flattered. He doesn't seem to say, well, you know what? I need to capture this moment. Instead, he withdraws. He recognizes for everything that they have right, they still don't get it. The time has not yet come. And so rather than letting them make him king, rather than Jesus being the fulfillment of their hopes and desires, Jesus is going to go before the Father to make sure that that's who's setting the agenda for him. And then he's going to go back and teach them about what it really means to feed them. And uh, that heart of Jesus, the very heart of the Father, the one who makes sure that Christianity is not like any religion that we could invent because it's the culmination of all the things we want and desire. But at some point, God says, your desires may be right 
and to the degree that they are, I will satisfy them. But your desires may be wrong or they may be confused. And uh, the problem is, if, if we say, I need a God that fits my expectations and my lives, my life, we're going to wind up with a God we've invented and we will be unchanged. We will have changed God. Jesus comes and he's compassionate. We see his heart. He knows our foolish questions, our superficiality, but he won't allow us to change him. He's going to make sure he stays who he is so that those who stay with him are changed by him. And that's the heart of Jesus, compassion. He's, he will feed those who will walk away from him, but he will continue to feed those who stay with him. The disciples see that. We should see that as well. Here's a second thing. So we see the heart of Jesus. We also see the initiative of Jesus. And what I'm trying to highlight here is what the disciples themselves saw rather than the crowds, because it looks like the crowds took initiative. We heard about this guy and here he is. It's kind of this great picture of, of Jesus on this mountain. And the description of grassy is part of, you know, they're by the Sea of Galilee. But keep in mind, the center of what's been happening for these people has been in Jerusalem, where it's not quite as grassy. It's a little bit more deserty. There's almost something um, that feels like it could be a climactic-ish kind of moment, something like the Garden of Eden, that once again, there's a guy who's up in a mountain, and it's lush, and it's grassy, and people are coming, and he's feeding them, and there's flourishing. Uh, and, and no doubt, there is an aspect of that, but the crowds are coming to him, and it is not yet time. And so what we find instead is that the disciples, the followers of Jesus, wind up having Jesus come to them to, to reveal something that the crowds could have seen but perhaps didn't have the capacity to. When Jesus withdraws to the Father to pray, the disciples get in the boat and they, they go to a different part of this kind of large lake. They call it the sea, but it's, I think, more of a lake. Why did they go? I don't know. I've been wondering about it this week, and there's no answer. But one of the things I wondered was, did they go looking for Jesus? Did Jesus disappear to pray with the Father, and they thought, where is he? We are also those who want to find Jesus. Maybe. Maybe they knew Jesus enough to know, oh, yeah, anytime Jesus does something significant, he usually withdraws, and he's probably going to be on that mountain long enough that we should probably go back to work. <laughs> so let's go do some fishing, do a few things, make some money, come back in a week, and reconnect with Jesus. I don't know exactly why they left. But we have the contrast of the crowds that hear about Jesus and they come to him. We have the disciples that are going their own way. And the setting of this in the context of John has theological implications. They're out on the sea in the night, four or so miles from the shore. It's windy. If you go back to the beginning of John's gospel, there's echoes of the book of Genesis. Genesis 1, the Bible opens up within the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1 opens up in the in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's where it winds up, winds up going. Uh, the picture we have is not that John is saying God is creating all things from nothing, as he once did. But the God who created all things from nothing wanted humanity to take those things and bring flourishing, but we've turned from God and caused a disaster. Now the time of new creation is coming. Now Jesus is coming, and he's taking these things, and he's making them new. And so just as in the beginning there was darkness, and God speaks light into it, just as there was a sea that covered everything, and God separated it out so there was a land that could be inhabited, just as there was a wind that was chaotic, 
and it becomes brought under uh, uh, God's wise ordering of things so that the earth could flourish. Uh, there's this moment that, that has the marks of that more chaotic creation, the sea with all of its danger, the wind, the darkness. And then it's then, it's not that the disciples on the lake having a prayer meeting saying, Jesus, where are you? I have no idea what they were thinking. But Jesus walks out and appears to them. And in that appearing, they see something that could have been seen in the feeding, but was harder to see in that context. What, what could you have seen in the feeding of 5,000? Who can take these few things and multiply it without our really understanding how it happens so that not only are the crowds fed, but there's so much left over. Well, that looks like it's the power of God. And the crowds recognize that. But by saying Jesus was a prophet, they were thinking, here's somebody from among us that has been raised up by God. And we are going to raise him even higher to make him a king. What Jesus winds up saying in the next section is, no, I'm the one who came down from heaven. And so you're recognizing the work of God in me, but you don't fully understand what it is. When he comes to the disciples, uh, the context, verses 17 to 18, it was dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. The, rough, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. That's their context. Verse 20, when he arrives, he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. And there's something that feels a little bit like a theophany. That's the word for an appearance of God. Um, anytime in the Bible there's an angelic, a divine appearance, a messenger of God breaks into our world, one of the first things he typically says is, do not be afraid. So Jesus comes to them and that, that message, do not be afraid. But when he says, it is I, in Greek, the phrase is ego emi, which means I am. So it is I is the proper translation. Um, and so Jesus saying I am is not an explicit claim to divinity. But think about Moses walking in the wilderness and seeing a burning bush and being confused. What is this thing? The bush is burning, but it's not consumed. And then he finds that actually this is a sign of God's presence with him. And God says, I will raise you up as the prophet and I will send you to deliver my people. And his question is, well, then how do I know these things? And so God gives him signs. But he also says, well, how will they believe if they don't believe the signs? And he says, well, tell them I am sent to you. Which is a weird thing because it feels meaningless if you don't know who I am is. Uh, but these people that were waiting for the prophet, these people that were reading the scriptures, now the disciples are sitting there in the darkness and somebody comes up to them and says, I am, don't be afraid. What the disciples have the opportunity to see here, not simply in the words that Jesus said, but the fact that Jesus went and sought them and found his disciples is something that I think makes a key and crucial difference for them. Why, when Jesus goes on to teach hard things, those who had been fed and satisfied and were awfully excited quickly decide, now we don't want to follow him. And why the disciples said, we're not sure what you're talking about, but we don't know that we have any place else to go. Uh, they've, they've come close to see Jesus and to see something that they now don't fully understand, but they know they shouldn't leave. Uh, and in that sense, uh, the, the story here, Jesus's initiative, um, I'm highlighting that because for many of us, our stories involve our doing the thing that we 
know to do? How do I seek God? How do I think through things? How do I think through what it means to have an ethical life, a moral life? Should I become a Christian? Should I become something else? Whatever the questions we have are there. Usually at some point, if you commit to Christianity and you're really looking to learn and deepen, there's some moment where you become aware that at the end of the day, you haven't been seeking God. But God has come and he has found you. And that could be a transformative moment because then when we shift from thinking it all depends on me and my understanding and what I can do and if I'm pleasing enough, and you realize that God who knows me still came, um, that that actually gives the kind of confidence. So when you find yourself saying, I don't understand, I don't know if I should continue, you at least have the awareness to know, but, but where else would I go? And so let me stay for the period. And, and that picture of Jesus coming to them in darkness, uh, the, the picture of his coming to them on the sea in this dangerous place is helpful because yes, when we go to him hungry with the crowds on the grassy hill, he will show us the great riches of Christianity. But we need more substance for life in this world. And this sign tells us that when you find yourself feeling like you're in the middle of nowhere and lost, the nature of Christian discipleship is that Jesus seeks and saves those who are lost. And so even in this sign, he multiplies all this bread with such abundance, there's a lot left over. It's a weird detail to say he gathered it up so that there were 12 basketfuls so that nothing would be lost. We have a crowd who walks away from him, but we have disciples who will not walk away from him, even though at this moment, they still don't understand what he's doing. And the encouragement for us is in those moments where you're like, I want to seek God. I need God's presence, but I can't find him. To know we can't control that moment, but to know that the heart of Jesus with compassion is that he didn't first allow you to come into his presence because he needed you, because you were worthy of it. But it's the nature of his compassionate heart. And so now he is not going to leave you when you're feeling like you don't know where he is or that you're not worthy. And so that initiative that God takes who comes after us is important for us to be sustained as disciples. And what happens is the disciples by the end of John have their own crisis moment. We don't know what to believe, but we don't know where else to go. But they stay with him and then they find that he had more than bread and fish to give them. And that's the nature of Christianity, that, that the more you follow Jesus, the more you trust him, the more you uh, entrust your life and your ways to him. While there are periods of confusion and testing and doubt and wanting to walk away or actually walking away, there's always that invitation, that, that warning, that call to return. Um, and, and the wise are meant to see, actually, Jesus offers something that, that I can't get anywhere else. And so, so the, the picture of Christianity is you're actually getting way more than you expected. The crowd was hungry. They wanted bread. They were sick. They wanted healing. Jesus knows that, so he'll feed them. But they didn't have life, and they needed it. And they weren't coming and listening to Jesus talking about how he could give that to them. So they needed to stay. And if they would have stayed and those who did stay and those who left and eventually came back found something far more significant. I read a story about a guy in Boston who bought a desk at an auction for $40. I did not see a photo of the desk, but I'm thinking if he paid $40 for it, this was not a, uh, he was not trying to impress anybody with this desk is what, what my assumption is, that this was maybe a practical thing. He just needed a desk. It was cheap. He bought it. It was missing a knob. 
So he bought it missing a knob and thought maybe the knob is somewhere in one of these drawers. He's going through, doing the kind of examining that he's trying to figure the thing out. And he finds an envelope and in the envelope are some matured bonds uh, that wound up being worth $127,000. And so here's a guy who wanted a desk <laughs> and then he got an enormous sum of money. We love those kinds of stories because those stories feel the opposite of the way the world works. Most of the time we're using our resources to say we want to make the desk look like it's way more valuable so we could sell it to people. And once they have it, let's change our phone number so they don't call us to ask any questions about the problems with it. The world is constantly selling us things that wind up disappointing us. And Jesus says, you're coming to me and maybe I will give you what you think you need. But spend some time and look around and you're going to find actually there's a lot more that you don't even realize uh, I can give you. And, and once we, we get the impression that actually Jesus is more interested in giving life to us than we are in finding and receiving it, it does help deepen the discipleship relationship to say in our periods of confusion, Maybe now I won't trust myself and my perceptions and my reasoning. Maybe now I will trust Jesus because where else would we go? He has the words of life. So um, we have the heart of Jesus, the initiative of Jesus. The last thing that I want to look at is the stewardship of Jesus. And what I have in view here is how he's training disciples to follow him in ministry, which is Jesus will give us what we need. But Jesus also gives us what the world needs. And this is why Christian discipleship is important to make sure that we don't stay superficial. Look at God who meets needs, who feeds our hunger, who satisfies our loneliness, who puts us in community. All of those things are valuable, important. We should rejoice in it. But if we remain superficial Christians, we're going to offer superficial things to the world and we're not going to be building anything of substance. What we need is to see, well, what is it that Jesus really wants to feed us? What is the life that he wants to give us? And to the degree that that is growing and changing us, when we go back into the world, we're not better than Jesus. If they're hungry, feed them food. If people are sick and we could heal them, if they're lonely and without a place to go, we welcome them. We don't need to be super spiritual, but we need to recognize that we do those things because there is a much deeper spring of life that is meant to send us out and sustain us so that we are giving something of greater substance. Um, I mentioned earlier the, the Adam and Eve story where we're in the Garden of Eden. Um, you know, I don't know how big the garden was. It seems to be this big, great, uh, lush place with trees and fruit. And Adam and Eve were told to cultivate it, to take the place that they were and to take such good care of it that it grows and grows and grows, presumably until the whole earth became the Garden of Eden. But they didn't trust God. Uh, they did their own thing, and then they wound up in a deserty kind of place where then nothing felt fruitful. And the nature of life in this world is we work hard, and it doesn't seem to be uh, leading to flourishing. Jesus, in coming to make things new, uh, is training his disciples. He's teaching them when the crowds come with hunger, feed them. <laughs> but he's also teaching them that there's a life that you can give them that they're not seeking. And if we're taking the things God has, steward, has given to us and stewarding them, he will bless and multiply it so that uh, we will be effective in the world. But the, the effectiveness is not measured by the marks of success. Did the crowds come? 
Did they like you? Did they approve? Are they now getting involved in your program? Sometimes with faithfulness, the crowds come and they eventually don't like it and they walk away. The mark is not the metrics of success, which is not to say that metrics don't matter because we want to be wise stewards. But we need to make sure that there are things that we know that we ultimately don't measure and can't control. And those are the things of substance that we give, uh, that we offer to people, life, the Holy Spirit, the promise of the gospel. We, we include uh, those things. And so um, with that, then a community that has the life of Christ and says, what has God entrusted to us so that we could serve and bless others is ready to give what we have, even if there's limitations. And so verse nine, um, Andrew says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? <laughs> so there he is. Jesus is like, how do we feed these crowds? We need to feed them. And Andrew looks as any of us would do. What do we have? Um, we've got five barley loaves and two fish. What are they for so many? And one of the things that they were going to learn is that, yeah, with Jesus present, it, in this case, it will wind up being enough. You'll, you'll be surprised. And so, um, you know, the gospel message, as we've been looking at John, the wine runs out. There's not enough at this party, but Jesus comes, and now there's a lot. We meet a man whose health runs out. He winds up young enough, but paralyzed and his life is not thriving and Jesus turns his life around. Now there's a crowd and they're seeking healing and they're hungry. And maybe they made some bad choices by eagerly going before they could pack some food, whatever the case is. But here's another situation where, where there's not enough and somehow Jesus's presence is that he will be enough. Um, but where he takes us in John is to say, but, but what's most important is not the bread that they ate, but but I myself am like that manna, that bread that God provided to his people in the wilderness, that if they feed on me, they will eventually be satisfied. And it's interesting that Jesus gives us a sign that he tells us as a church when we gather, break bread and share in a cup and remember me. And it seems like in the first century, they would have these great dinner festivals that in that they would take the bread and they would remember Jesus and they would take the cup. And I found myself thinking, wouldn't that be so much better? Except you read 1 Corinthians and people are showing up and they're getting drunk. And Paul says, you're missing what this is about. And it seems like in the evolution of those gatherings, they said, you know what? We're almost better off not doing this in the midst of a feast because we're getting excited about the bread and the wine and we're not really remembering Jesus. And the evidence of that is how we're treating one another. That's the problem in the Corinthian church. So it is an interesting sign. We gather as a church every week and we hold up a piece of bread that wouldn't be enough for everyone here. And then we have these small pieces that everyone takes. But Jesus says, now do this in remembrance of me. What, what are we remembering? We're remembering that God is a God who feeds. He will nourish his people. He will not forget that we have uh, practical lives that, he needs, that we need provision for. But we're also finding that Jesus is offering something to us that may feel small, uh, but it's so much more than we realize. The sign of this one piece of bread where Jesus says, do you understand that I'm giving you myself? Yes, you're hungry, but I could, I could have a banquet for you tonight and you would be starving by tomorrow afternoon. I'm coming to give you food. I'm coming to heal your bodies. I'm coming to make all things new. But I'm coming to move you from death to life, from separation from God to connection with God, to hostility, from hostility to forgiveness. And that sign Jesus gives us allows us as a church every week to say, you know what? There are so many things that I want. There's so many things that I really feel like I need. 
and we're going to be tested this week. Is Jesus enough? Well, here's a sign. Remember what he did for you. Remember the heart of Jesus with compassion. He knows what you need. He will feed you. He laid down his life. This is a sign that not only will he not let you go hungry, but he will suffer in a way that you will never have to suffer. Is that enough? And the honest answer for most of us most weeks is it doesn't feel like it. We come with our superficiality. We come with our appetites. And Jesus says, come. Come hoping this week that you'll get a better job. Pray for it. Maybe I'll provide for you. But also come knowing that if you don't, you can be okay because I'm with you. I will come to you with your deepest need. I gave my life so that you will have life. Why not trust me with all things? And that discipline weekly to come together and say, we actually believe Jesus is enough, that he offers us life. And that once we have that, we can trust him for the rest of the things. It allows us to be the unique kind of community Jesus calls us to be, which is to be a community of faith that is generous. Where we live in a city that is so large that for our 100 and 150 people, however many of this there are, what can we do to fix the problems of the city? And then you realize the city agencies funded by tax dollars, the nonprofits, the experts at all of these institutions are all making genuine progress and faithfully addressing needs, but we are not making the problems go away. The church is called to be bold enough to say, if people are hungry, we're not trying to be super spiritual, we still need to feed them. But there's actually something more that nobody else is providing that we will believe that if we go out trusting in the goodness and power of God, that he will take the little that we have and he will multiply it. He will cause it to grow. So one group of leaders in our church is called the Mercy Team. They function like our deacons where we're there to provide for the cares of our community, both in the church but outside of the church. A little bit more than 10 years ago at one of our meetings where we're trying to be faithful stewards. We have money entrusted to us. So faith doesn't say, let's just go out and, you know, get rid of it. But we we try to make a budget and we try to plan and we try to, to set several years of goals and think of what trajectories we're on. That's faithful stewardship. So we do that. So a little bit more than 10 years ago, we found ourselves saying, even in our own neighborhood, there's just too many. There are, there are elderly people that are lonely. Uh, there are, are sick people that need visitation. Um, there are all sorts of things. We, we can't, as our small church, by our own design and intentionality, make a huge dent in all of these things. So uh, that, that particular group said, we're gonna set three priorities. We're gonna focus our resources typically towards children, education, and homelessness. We're not gonna solve those issues, but we're gonna take what's been trusted to us to try to push against uh, uh, those forces. And so why do we partner with the Bowery Women's Center uh, in East Harlem? Because they house women who otherwise might be homeless. Why are we sending people on Saturday mornings to do uh, a literacy program for our neighbors because they're children and we believe they will benefit from education. So we're trying to do the best that we can to make faithful choices because God has given us wisdom. So let's take what we have and let's be faithful stewards. And yet in that, we always know at the end of the day, God's ways are not our ways. Our job is to be faithful, to be wise, to be prayerful, to seek his leading but we never really know what God will do. And so we want to help kids in our neighborhood become educated. And we have a plan that we think uh, through this partnership will contribute to that. And let's hope and, and let's be wise. If it's not effective, um, being faithful doesn't mean we're gonna keep doing it and it's not working. People aren't showing up. You have to be wise about it. But on the other hand, 
we can go week after week and we may find God is doing something radically different to us, to people in the, that we're caring for, to neighbors. That's the perspective of faith, which is to say, you know, here are these disciples looking at these huge crowds and Jesus saying, so what do we do? And they answer practically, this is all we have. And yet Jesus seems to be present in a way that, that the little that they have is enough. And as a church, we've always said, 100, 150 people is not going to make a huge dent in a city of millions. But we have the word of life. And so when we go in faith, we really believe that God is going to do something. And we don't always know that we will recognize it while it's happening. But we trust that as we go faithfully, God will take the little that we have and he will multiply it. So we, we keep going. <laughs> we recognize the, an abundance. Um, the story that I told earlier <clears throat> about this guy who bought the desk, finding $127,000 in it. I don't know anything about the guy. What his thinking is, um, seems to be a good guy. He called the auction place and said, who sold this desk to you or donated it to you? <laughs> and he found the owner of it and he reached out to them and said, I found an envelope in the desk with $127,000 worth of bonds. Uh, as it turns out, the reason that they sold this desk uh, so they knew about the bonds and they'd been lost for years. They said, we had no idea where they went. They sold the desk because the owner of the desk was now 94, not able to take care of himself, living longer than perhaps that they had budgeted for. And now they didn't have enough money. So they're starting to sell things. And the next thing was going to be the house. Can you imagine for them, somebody calling and saying, hey, we found $127,000 that belongs to you and I want to return it. You know, the nature of the work of God, I mean, picture this guy thinking, I bought a desk and I found $127,000. Amazing. Picture a family saying, we lost $127,000, and now we can't care for our aging parent. And yet what was lost was found. I think the impact on that family was greater than for the guy, and I suspect for the guy, giving it back probably had a much better impact for him than keeping it and enjoying it. And there's something about the way that God does things to say, when you, when you live by faith, when you trust his provision, and, and you're upright and honest, and you seek to be a disciple like Jesus, where you're not constantly thinking, what can I get next? But I'm going to trust Jesus is enough, and you're going to look at what he's given you, and, and you're going to take it and say, if there's something I could share here, I will share it. To believe that God will provide enough for you. He's not going to abandon his people who live by faith. But to think that also God might be doing something that you can't imagine through your life. And certainly for us as a community, again, that the plan of faith is not just to go into the world without thoughtfulness. Let's be faithful stewards. Let's take note of what we have and seek to share it. But if we really want to have an impact, we always have to know it's never enough. But if we have the word of life, if we have Jesus in our midst, if we have the power of his Holy Spirit, then we can keep going confident that wherever we go, we have something to give. And we will find ourselves in situations where the hungry person says it's not enough, and we're going to feel humiliated. We wish we had more. We wish we had the wisdom to fix this. But when you show up in faith, you can show up and say, but, but if Christ is with me, he will give me enough, and he will use me. And that stewardship um, only comes from a deepening discipleship. We need to know that Christ doesn't simply feed the hungry, but, but Christ gives life. And once we're focused on that, there then are so many things that we can do to contribute to the plan to make all things new.
as we follow him. Let me pray for us. Our Father, as we are gathered here today, we acknowledge that we have come for all sorts of superficial reasons, just because we're supposed to, because somebody made us, because it's our routine. Uh, Maybe we came wanting something that maybe is a little bit embarrassing to us. Lord, it's, it's a marvel that you invite us. You tell us to come for whatever reason, but once we come, you try to show us that there's more, that you're a God who loves, a God who provides, a God who watches over, a God who gives life, a God who forgives. And so help us in this gathering today to be fed at the depth of our soul. So when we leave, we would leave less superficial than when we entered, less hungry, but more satisfied in you. Lord, we appeal to you for it, knowing that it's a work of your generosity. And so trusting you were generous, we pray with thanks that you would continue that work of deepening us. Uh, Help us with these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.